0: and you can get an extra three months free. ExpressVPN.com slash SlashFilm.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to slash Film Daily for August 4th, 2017. On today's show, Ben Pearson joins us, and we're going to be talking about the news, Miami Vice, live-action Lion King remake, The Dark Tower, Han Solo, and Star Wars Secrets of the Empire. And for the mailbag, Jacob Hall is going to be joining us to talk about favorite video games books and comic books that should be movies and in our feature presentation we're going to be talking about this crazy game of thrones fan theory that is going around the online that we wrote up on slash so all that and more but we're going to start with the news and for the news i have ben how's it going ben hey what's up peter <laughs> it's it, uh i just uh you know i'm recovering from seeing the dark tower <laughs> uh, which we both saw last night because it was the only press screening for the Dirk Hour, I think, what, like 23 hours before it is unleashed upon this world. Yes. Which uh, doesn't speak much to the, the studio's um faith in the movie. Right. Uh the, the early responses and reviews have hit the interwebs, um, and it seems mostly negative to disastrous um personally i was going into this thing expecting it to be a complete disaster but i was and maybe i was expecting so much of a you know just like a total and utter disaster that i was actually surprised at how coherent it was especially considering we've heard rumors of it you know being a three-hour movie condensed to 95 minutes Mm -hmm. um uh But in the end, it's it's just very generic and boring.
0: Yeah, that's the biggest problem with the film. I read the first book in the series. I know Jacob has uh, has read all of them. He's been the big Stephen King fan on the site. But I read The Gunslinger and uh, I sort of knew what I was getting myself into with this film. I was also hoping to like it, even though I suspected greatly suspected that it was going to be uh, a questionable adaptation and it, it just almost nothing about this movie worked for me. It was like Idris Elba is the only thing in the film that maybe can get by unscathed. And he just barely skates by because he doesn't really have that much dialogue. And that I think maybe is like the central problem of the movie is that they make Jake Chambers, the young kid, the main character of the film. Who's and, so
1: bland and yeah, so and
0: generic. Y- And you don't even really get into the real action of the story until like, I don't know, the second act or something. It's like there's so much wasted time in there with Jake and like dealing with his family life and all this stuff that like, I don't know if that becomes a key part of the books later on in the series or something. But in a movie, you do not need that stuff. And I was shocked at how much time was being wasted on that in a relatively short movie that has so much. Uh, mythology to get to and it just sort of i don't know yeah the the result was uh extremely disappointing i despised every single acting choice that matthew mcconaughey made nothing about his performance as the man
1: in black worked for me um oh yeah there's nothing to that character he's just like an evil dude doing evil things and you know theoretically he just wants to ruin the world for no apparent reason yeah, um, we don't get
0: any insight into why he wants to do yeah. anything that he says he wants to do. It's
1: uh, yeah, it's it's a big mess of a movie. Anyways, you can head to slashfilm.com. There is uh, an early buzz roundup, and by the time that this airs, you should actually see a fuller review on the site, um, as well. So, yes, let's move on. Uh, last or yesterday, uh, it was announced that they are going to be rebooting. Miami Vice, from Fast and the Furious collaborators Vin Diesel and Chris Morgan, Uh, you wrote up the story for SlashLim.com. What do we know?
0: Yeah, it's pretty early days still, but Variety reports that uh, Vin Diesel's production company, One Race Television, is teaming up with Chris Morgan's... Chris Morgan Productions, to develop a new version of Miami Vice at its old network home, which is NBC. So this is going to be a mainstream, you know, a broadcast cable version of the show. Um, Somebody named Peter McManus, who's written a handful of TV episodes, uh, he wrote an episode of the new Spike TV adaptation of The Mist, for example, is going to be writing the script. And really, that's all the like hard you know solid information we have at this point we know that in 2014 universal was thinking about making another miami vice movie um miami miami vice of course was uh was the the tv show in the 80s it was like a huge cultural um you know a, a cultural touchstone for an entire generation it was hugely influential as far as cop shows and not only you know in the tv world but like uh on fashion and just uh, the music of the show and everything. It was like the MTV uh, cops basically. Is yeah. All, all
1: I remember is they used to be chasing people with, on, on uh, cop boats all the time. Oh yeah. We, oh, yeah. yeah. So, uh, uh, and then Michael Mann who produced all of the episodes
0: of the original show, which ran from 1984 to 1989 also made a movie in 2006 with Colin Farrell and Jamie Foxx. Uh, apparently Michael Mann is not involved in this new version of the uh, Miami Vice reboot, but I mean, considering the source material and the idea that it's all about, you know, fast cars, fast boats, um, you know, crazy colors, hot women, cool cinematography and stuff, I feel like the Fast and Furious, uh, the guys, the major creative forces behind the Fast and Furious universe are probably as good a choice as any as you'll find to be able to, you know, port that sensibility over onto the small screen. So, uh, it is sort of a high bar to clear just because the original show was so influential and so, um, you know, monumental uh, at at that time. And I don't know if they're going to be able to on NBC, especially make a show that has, you know, a quarter of the cultural relevance that, that the original Miami Vice had, but
1: we'll see what happens. Oh, Oh, they probably won't. And, um, I like the Michael Mann film, but it clearly seemed like he did not have an affinity to the original he wanted he basically used it as an excuse to make his own cop movie it seemed like to me and uh i would assume that chris morgan and vin diesel probably will take this to you know uh we'll be honoring the original tv show a lot more than he did at d23 hugh jackman was seen at Disneyland, the same day that they were doing a live action panel and rumors started to circulate that he might be voiced in Scar in John Favreau's The Lion King. That didn't come to be the case. Um, that just tur- turned out that uh, Hugh Jackman was trolling people. <laughs> but um, – uh, we we do have a person who is ca- has been cast as Scar, and who is that Ben? Yes, that is uh,
0: Chiwetel Ejiofor, who is in Twelve Years a Slave, and he played Baron Mordo and Doctor Strange. He is currently in talks to provide the voice of of Scar in uh, John Favreau's new quote-unquote live-action uh, take on The Lion King, which is going to be done entirely in CG. Um, Peter, you saw some footage from this, some you a know, very early look at, at D23, and you said that people just went nuts for this. Um, yeah, I mean, it, I-
1: it was a room full of Disney fanatics. So right. seeing, you know, basically a scene from The Lion King, that, that classic scene where he holds out uh, Simba over, you know, the Savannah... Mm-hmm. basically Christian, uh, christening him uh it seeing that with animals that looked you know entirely photorealistic mm-hmm. and the you know the elton john music and uh you know it It just uh i was looking around and there was multiple people around me in tears yeah. and uh you know we didn't get to see any of the animals talk so i'm not sure what's going to happen once you know they open their mouths, uh but uh, it looked very promising, and it looked like it looked like Jon Favreau has learned quite a bit from his uh experience on Jungle Book. Um, yeah, and of Four is like
0: he has this really nice sense of menace about him when he wants to sort of crank that up. So I feel like he's a really good choice to take on Scar. Uh, Jeremy Irons voiced the character in the 1994 animated movie, but um. Uh, Edu4 was in he played the villain uh the operative in joss whedon's serenity um and i thought that that's one of those like villain performances that has stuck with me ever since i saw the movie that came out in like 2005 or something um so i am uh, i'm excited to see him play another villain or at least one that um that is yeah. like a full-on villain because a lot of times he's played characters that have sort of towed the line but this scar is obviously like a classic shakespearean type of villain since the lion king is basically a retelling of hamlet anyway
1: yeah and, and this is another example of disney's incestuous casting choices um it seems like they love to you know have i i know the the hollywood era of star contracts is not happening anymore but it it definitely seems like they like to bring the same people back for multiple movies like a Lapita is in a, in a, bunch of stuff. Uh, we have, um, Josh Gad. Yeah. Josh Cannon is not everything. Lin Minwell <laughs> is, is, you know, coming back. Uh, you know, it, it's just, um, this seems like another case of that. Um, you know, they probably liked working with him and bringing him back for this. Uh, I mean, it seems, he seems perfect for the role anyways, but moving from that to more obvious casting choices, uh, Ron Howard has cast someone in *Han Solo*, and that someone is someone who he has in most of his films, and that person is Clint Howard, his brother. Yes. Well, you wrote yes. this up for SlashFilm.com.
0: Yeah, so basically somebody on Twitter asked uh, Clint Howard, or I'm sorry, asked Ron like, hey, please tell me you have a role for Clint in the Han Solo film. And Ron Howard responded, you won't be disappointed. So I don't know what that means. We don't know if Clint, ha- Clint Howard is going to be playing a an alien or you know some sort of humanoid figure or what exactly his involvement is going to be. But uh, it sounds like Clint Howard superfans will not be disappointed <laughs> at his appearance in Han Solo. This guy, if you don't recognize his name, you would absolutely recognize his face. He has one of the most distinctive looks in Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. Um, he played a, a character called the ice cream man in a low budget horror movie in 1995 that I saw when I was really young and has, has sort of uh, imprinted as like this horrific, um, this horrific uh, portrayal of a villain on my mind. And I have not been able to uh, shake that every time I see him in anything since then. So but he yes, he has. He's been in a ton of um, Clint Howard, or I'm sorry, Ron Howard movies, uh, through, you know, going all the way back to Grand Theft Auto, like his first, uh, feature film. So, um, yeah, and, and
1: sometimes it's a small or like a really tiny cameo almost. And sometimes it's a bigger role, like a, yeah. a significant speaking role. Uh, a lot of times it is, it almost seems like he's giving him a crap. <laughs> uh, like he gives them a, a character that, uh, That nobody else would take. Yes. That no one else would take. (laughs) And Clint Howard is, you know, if you looked him up, if you looked up character actor in the dictionary, you'd see a a picture of his face. Yeah. Um, but you can go to your article on, on And I think you have a rundown of a lot of the roles that Clint Howard has done over the years in Ron Howard movies. Um, moving on. That's not the only star Wars news we have for you today. Uh, they have announced that they are going to be doing. ILM X Labs is teaming up with, uh, what is the company? The um, it's
0: called Lucasfilm, and then The Void is the void. The, uh, the VR company.
1: Yeah, and they're teaming up for this thing called Star Wars Secrets of the Empire. It's going to be coming to Disneyland and Disney World Resort at their downtown Disney locations. And uh, you can tell me more about this, but I know I have some experience with The Void. The Void is an intro like where everybody else is doing these. VR experiences where you're sitting in a chair or you're, you know, you're standing in the middle of like, you know, a 10 foot by 10 foot area. The void mm-hmm. basically has you put on these glasses and you strap to your back the computer so you, you can walk throughout the location. I, I think it's called room scale VR. And they did this uh thing with Ghostbusters, I think a year or two ago, uh, Ghostbusters enter the void. And I think you can still see it in manhattan and you you basically get to go throughout this apartment and the cool thing about this is usually in vr you have controllers that you touch things you know you're, you're basically just playing a video game but it looks like you're there uh with the void you're actually you know you reach out and there's a door handle there and you turn the door handle and that's actually you turning a door handle that's in the room mm-hmm. so there's the tactical feedback and there's you know wind effects and you know stuff it makes it, it it's like the 4dx of VR experiences. (laughs) Uh, So what are they doing with Star Wars? This is very exciting because I I want to be in the world of Star Wars.
0: Yeah, so that's basically what they've promised is soon you'll literally be able to step inside of Star Wars. So uh, all these teams have, have collaborated to form this thing called Star Wars Secrets of the Empire. We're not exactly sure what the story is, but I've speculated about that. I'll get to that in a second. But the official description says that it will allow fans to freely move in an untethered social and multi-sensory experience including interaction with friends fans and star wars characters so that's sort of like what you're talking about um if you go to my write-up of it on slash film i've embedded a look at a video from the void themselves that uh i think showcases a lot of what peter was just talking about so if you're not really able to wrap your head around exactly what that means um this video does a really good job of showing you exactly what i
1: mean um, imagine like Imagine you seeing a lightsaber, and you bend over to pick it up, and you actually pick it up with your hand, and you press the button, and you feel the vibration as the you know the yeah. the light the laser you know jolts out of the saber. I mean, I don't know. I want to feel a real lightsaber in my hands, Ben. Yeah, for sure.
0: So, you know, in
1: wondering what this
0: could be about, I was speculating a little bit. And the official um, image that came with this announcement shows uh, K2SO from Rogue One and a bunch of kids, you know, in the foreground sort of shooting at stormtroopers and stuff. But in the background, there is lava everywhere and Darth Vader's castle um, with, you know, lava flowing out of it. And we saw that in Rogue One, and that's on the planet Mustafar. And we have... We've talked about that in uh, various posts across the site. But uh, the thing that I'm wondering about is David Goyer, I think this was at Star Wars celebration last year, um, yes, hinted at he was making a, a VR experience surrounding, you know, or involving Darth Vader. And I'm wondering if this is actually that project, because uh, Star Wars, the people at the story group are so meticulous about. You know releasing information and sort of controlling the flow of things through Lucasfilm They would not release this image as just like a toss-off thing without any thought they know that this is going to have something to do with Darth Vader. And I I can't believe that they would be developing two separate Darth Vader VR related projects at the same time. It just doesn't really make a lot of sense. So I'm pretty sure this is the one that David Goyer is going to be um, working on or has been working on for the past year and a half, two years at this point. Um, And uh, we've written about that. And you can read all of that stuff in my post on Slash Film. I I sort of broke down uh, what it could be, what it could look like, and all all of the, the points that Sort of fall together on why this might be the same project as the one that Goyer's is working on.
1: Ben, are you a big gamer?
0: Um, I have a PS3, so that tells you how far behind I am. <laughs> but uh, but I like playing video games. I just have not um, you know had the the time, effort, or money uh, to upgrade to something. You know, <laughs> I, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm a modern gamer, but yeah. I uh, I do like playing.
1: Yeah, I would I would be in the same boat. Have you had any experiences with VR?
0: Yeah, I went with you, or I was covering it for a different site. But last year, or maybe was that was that early this year? We went to the um, the oh, IMAX yeah, yeah, you VR. Were there, yeah, yeah. So that that was my first real experience with it. I mean, I think like at the Doctor Strange junket, they had a little thing, a little VR thing set up. But for the, that IMAX one, which you did a really great write up of, and people can search and find that on the site too. Um, yeah, I'll put that in the show notes yeah there that was like my first real deep dive into playing you know experiencing a bunch of different types of vr all in one location
1: it's interesting because i feel like vr is a great experience but not too many people are going to invest the money to you know have a computer that can run vr you know the oculus headset and then you know download the games it's just like too big of an investment and then if you want to have, you know, anything where you're walking around, then you gotta get rid of your coffee table and right. whatnot. So now there's popping up these like, you know, IMAX VR centers and there's Void is trying to do this too and stuff. Uh so it's 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 interesting that like, you know, there's this big push for studios to do create content, VR content, but there's not much of an outlet oh and i should say that playstation has playstation vr which is probably the one that's going to win out because that's the cheapest entry point but um but i i would think that for now these kind of experiences are going to be things that you go to at theme parks and you know locations like imax vr and it seems like a no-brainer to bring something like this to you know disneyland or to eventually you know star wars land yeah, uh, for sure. They uh, when when I was at D twenty three Expo, uh, just a few weeks ago, they showed off this big, uh, sprawling, gigantic model of Star Wars Land, and there was a location that looked like it was like a rebel base location with a gunner, and they had a model of it off to the side. And obviously, Imagineering's not talking about this or or anything, but I want to speculate that that location could be like. An ex- a VR experience or not a VR, maybe even AR experience where you actually go in there and can shoot down like, you know, first order TIE fighters that are coming to land on the, the planet. Um, so it, it, it would make sense to me that they would be trying to bring VR experiences into the park. And Star Wars seems like a great entry point to it as well. And now joining us for the mailbag is Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. How's it going, Jacob? It's going pretty good, Peter. Um, today's mailbox question comes from Nicholas E of Chicago Heights, Illinois. And the question is, what is a video game or book or comic book that you wish could be adapted into a film? And I think this is a question we've done in slash answers before. Uh, or we've done one of those, right? Um, the, uh, you know, I'll start this off. Um, One book that I've wanted – I don't read a lot of books, but one book I've wanted to see a movie adaptation of for a while is Chuck Palahniuk's uh, Survivor. And that's the author of Fight Club and Lullaby and uh, Choke. And I think uh, Francis Lawrence was going to be making a film adaptation of this at one point, but uh, September 11th happened, and this book – Works under the framework of the, the 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 protagonist is basically crashing a plane into a building, so that kind of put the <laughs> put put the, uh, the smoke on that fire. And um, but I'd like to see it eventually be made. I don't know if it would have to be you know it would have to be an R rated thing, and it would have to be you know you know it would have to be given its creative freedom. Um, it's very much in the tone. And humor of survive uh, of a fight club so mm. what, what what book would you like to see turned into movie Jacob
2: well I decided to go nonfiction for this one because you're right we did do what book do you want to see adapted into a movie for a slash answers feature a few months ago and that's why I chose the sci-fi book that forever war so this time I want to go with Mark Harris's pictures at a revolution it could be better served as a TV show or a miniseries. And even even now, Netflix recently adapted Mark Harris's other book, Five Came Back, into a documentary series. But it's such a great series of stories, I think, all combat each other. The basic gist of the book is that it takes a look at the five Best Picture nominees of 1968. Bonnie and Clyde, The Graduate, "Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, In the Heat of the Night, and Dr. Doolittle, of all things. <laughs> and, it, and it examines these five movies and says, okay... Here's an example of old Hollywood and new Hollywood colliding. You have The Graduate and Bonnie and Clyde, these, these trailblazing movies. You have Doc Doolittle, a relic of the 60s, a representative of old Hollywood at dying. Then you have In the Year of the Night and Guess to Come to Dinner, which are movies that are sort of stuck in the middle, movies that kind of exist at the halfway point between old Hollywood and new Hollywood. And it's fascinating as a film fan, but then there's so many amazing characters in it, uh, from studio moguls and uh, directors, producers, actors.
1: Rex so, Harrison, so, so are you pitching right? this as a documentary, or is this a narrative?
2: Oh, no, this is, is a narrative, because some, somebody has to play Rex Harrison, the Starbuck dude, little, who is a crazy person, or <laughs> who was a crazy person. An alcoholic who is, uh, whose wife was a legitimately mentally ill person who he dragged on the set and who would strip tease and get drunk in front of, the, in front of everybody, and it, it's just... All kinds of bad behavior, all kinds of production stories. I just picture this sort of five chapter movie where you see these five movies being made like windows into these people at this point in time in film history. And I don't know how you make that work, but that's what I want to see.
1: Ben, what is your pick for book?
0: Uh, I would go with The Devil in the White City, which I think uh, Martin Scorsese has been talking about adapting with Leonardo DiCaprio for a long time, I think years at this point. Yeah, that's one of those long
1: in the works projects.
0: Yeah, I recently got around to reading the book, probably last summer or something like that. Um, And Eric Larson's novel is just I mean, it's not even an it's like it's a weird blending of uh, of like real events it's all real events but there's a little bit of fictionalization going on with some of the uh the dialogue and stuff in there but it's very um it's almost like peter we were talking on previous episodes about that secret histories of hollywood uh podcast it's sort of like that but in book form where it's like The author takes a little bit of liberties, um, but it's extensively researched, and like the the bibliography in the back of the book is like longer than some chapters of the book. It is insane how much time was you know spent uh, diving into this world, and it is it so wonderfully recreates um, Chicago in this era when um, you don't really see that on film very often. So I'm really hoping you know fingers crossed that Scorsese gets to make this one eventually.
1: Yeah, um I don't I'm not a big video gamer uh, as we previously discussed in this episode. Uh so I don't really have any video games to go off of. You know, although I'd like to see an uncharted movie that just seems like it's in you know, riffing off Indiana Jones and Die Hard too much. Uh th- what uh, for co- I am a big comic book reader though. Um I've wanted to see Why the Last Man be adapted for forever. Uh, Dan Trachtenberg was involved at one point. Uh, now I think they're making a TV series version, which might be the way to go, but it, it, that, that might even be like, we've had so many post-apocalyptic kind of television adventures at this point that I'm not even sure if that's going to be relevant, uh, today. Uh, but, um, a comic book I've been reading recently is Ed Brubaker's Killer Be Killed, and I don't want to really give away the premise or the, the conceit of this comic, but it's, it's really about this vigilante who has, to, who is forced to go out into the world and, you know, kill bad people. And, um, why you got to find out, you got to read it to find out it has a very, uh, has a very like David Fincher kind of cold, but funny take on it. Uh, you know, you could compare it to fight club, uh, which is strange because i you know my other one was the author of my <laughs> club um but yeah that would be another choice from the comic realm uh jacob do you have any comic uh options oh do i uh it's actually i have
2: so many comics I love see adapted but think about the times we live in i w- i think it's time for trans metropolitan to follow preacher to the big screen i feel like these two comics were kind of they're cousins. They're 90s Virgo comics. They're both filthy, they're both deranged, they're both offensive. They both kind of need a, a tune-up to appeal to 2017 audiences. But uh, Transmetropolitan is a science fiction comic from writer Warren Ellis and uh, artist Derek Robertson. And the best way to pitch it in a nutshell would be, what if Hunter S. Thompson lived in, in Blade Runner, but instead of being cool, Blade Runner was really, really crappy. <laughs> and everybody was... Unhappy and and everything from reality television to lame cults to um bad plastic surgery ruled everybody's minds. It, it's it's very similar to <laughs> I hate to say 2017 America, but it, but it is. It's just <laughs> colorful dystopia where where the main character is an angry angry journalist whose job often involves getting into gunfights and killing lots of people. So so, <laughs> and, so,
1: what you're saying, it's based on your life.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's based entirely on my life. I think, I, I think it may be better for a TV show, but I think the scope of it is too huge. It's the sci-fi world, which is this combination of, like I said, Blade Runner meets bad reality TV show uh, in, in its aesthetics is um, so large and gross that I, I, I want to see it as a big budget movie.
1: Ben, do you have any comic books you'd like to see on the big screen?
0: Yeah, I would go with Fables, uh, even though I think, again, that might be maybe better suited for TV, but sort of in the same realm of what Jacob was just talking about. The scope of it is so huge. This is Bill Willingham's comic series that it basically um, puts uh, classic fairy tale characters into modern day New York City. Uh, and they it, it, all. It's sort basically of- what Once Upon a Time copied. Yes. Yes, exactly. I was really pissed when Once Upon a Time came out because I, I was like, I think ABC was also developing a Fables show at that point, And then they ended up going with this other version. And I was like, wow, this is just so nakedly obvious that you guys took that idea and didn't want to pay Bill Willingham for you know for the work that he did on this comic series and you just basically ripped it off and, and created their other whole other thing but uh but i even if you have seen once upon a time i would highly highly recommend diving into fables and uh i haven't even gotten all the way through the whole thing yet but um all of the comics that i've read so far have been fantastic so uh that one would be uh, definitely a cool choice for a movie
1: yeah and those are like mysteries uh it's uh you know, the, the my hesitation about it becoming a TV show is I think it probably needs a bigger budget for yeah, some exactly. of these creatures and, and stuff. Um, another comic book I wanted to mention is Letter 44, which is, I think is an Oni Press uh, comic. And it basically takes place uh, – basically this new president – is elected and comes into office after kind of basically the Bush administration, if you think if you think about that. Like it's the guy that comes in after that. And on the desk is a letter from the previous president basically explaining that the war that he made up, you know, and all the money that they've spent towards wars that, you know, six years ago or something like that, that they got NASA spotted an asteroid the had some kind of thing on it that was of it looked of alien descent, and they they needed the money to send a mission up, uh, a manned mission up, to investigate this. And you know, the cover story was that the that the astronauts died in the explosion that you know going up. But a couple days after this president is is elected into office, that basically this this crew is going to reach the asteroid. And, you know, we're going to find out what's what. Um, So it's basically it's kind of like 24 meets lost meets uh, alien, if that makes sense. Um, It's cutting between, you know, this political kind of uh, thing on Earth and also some encounters with some, you know, other life forms up in uh, space and what what, you know, is going on there. It's kind of a mystery. Um, It's very interesting. I think it could be a TV show. I think. Sci-fi channel tried to turn into a TV show, but sci-fi doesn't do that great with TV shows. So I'm I'm hoping for a movie. Uh, that and uh, my last pick, uh, not to belabor all these picks, but uh, my last pick is Gotham Academy, which is this comic from DC that basically takes place in this uh, prep school in Gotham, and it, it, it's kind of like one of those books that it isn't about superheroes, but it you know it's set in that world of you know Batman and super villains and it's, it's a lot of fun and I could definitely see that being a CW show like Riverdale. Um, it could, it could be a lot of fun. Um, do you guys have any video game picks? Yeah, yeah I, I'll just I'll, 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 I'll run through mine real quick because they're fast. Uh, mine
0: are, are more joke picks than anything else. First up is Stranglehold, which is the sequel to um, John Woo's Hard Boiled, which uh, Chow Yun-Fat reprised his role. This is actually based on a, a 2007 uh, video game that came out for PlayStation 3. And um, I played this game in that year and loved it and haven't played it since. But I was always just like I loved the idea of revisiting um Chang fats character Tequila from Hard Boiled, and seeing what he was up to again. So the game is like very, hmm. you know, like bullet time and all sorts of, uh, sort of like a Max Payne and and the Matrixy kind of vibe. Um, but it's it it plays like a John Woo movie feels. So I would love to actually see those two get together and turn this game into a real movie. Um, and then the other one would be Earthworm Jim, which is just a totally psychotic game from the 90s and i would love to see andy circus in like a mocap suit playing (laughs) earthworm jim i think that would be something to behold so those are my picks how about you jacob
2: i'm gonna go with a tricky one because it's my favorite game of all time and it will never work as a movie but i'm going to pitch it anyway and that is bloodborne which was released a few years ago it is from software's spiritual follow-up to the dark souls series and it is a gothic horror action game. It's very famous for its difficulty more than anything else. It's the kind of game where either you throw your control down in frustration, quit after an hour, or you kind of enter the meditation of learning how to fail and learning it better at it, which I end up really enjoying. But the reason I want to see a movie is because I fell in love with this dark, twisted world that's part Eastern Europe, part H.P. Lovecraft's Dreamland story, if you're familiar with that portion of his, of his literature. Yeah. Um, there, and the thing is there's no actual story the game never pauses to say here's what's going on next the game never introduces any proper characters the story is hidden in the margin you have to search for it, find connections and if you manage to connect all the lore which people online have it's such a compelling, deep, complex world with so much history and a film version could actually ruin that by making it too obvious but as someone who spent 100 hours in this world and still wants to go back and play it again for the third or fourth time I would love to revisit on the big screen, uh, even if it's like a dialogue-free 76-minute-long experimental art movie, which may be the right way to tackle Bloodborne.
1: It it should be (laughs) noted that Jacob's making this pick before he sees the Dark Tower realized (laughs) on the big screen, Uh, which I think after that you might not be making this pick. Uh, But for the same reasons, I didn't include Saga on this list. I would love to see a movie of Saga, but that will never work. Um. Anyways, let's move on – I should say to submit questions to the mailbag, send them to peter at slashfilm.com. Please mention your name and general geographic location in case we mention the question on the air. Again, that's peter at slashfilm.com. Let's move on to our feature presentation. Uh, today, this new crazy Game of Thrones fan theory hit the interwebs. And at Slashfilm, we we always love in, uh, entertaining you know, a good fan theory. Jacob, you wrote the story up on SlashLum.com. What is this fan theory?
2: All right. Uh, first of all, I want to credit Mashable for bringing this to our attention, but it's actually courtesy of a Reddit user named Matt Twee or Matt Wee. I can't, however you want to say that. <laughs> and the thing about Game of Thrones fan theories, I say this in the article, and I, I usually write them off because George R. R. Martin, the creator of Game of Thrones through his original novels, always kind of Goes out of his way to subvert expectations, not in a way that's about, I'm going to surprise you, but in a way of, oh, in real life, in history, which he draws very heavily from, from Game of Thrones, uh, unexpected, lame, and lousy things happen. There are no heroes, and prophecies don't come true. Oh, wait, should we, uh,
1: should we give a spoiler warning here?
2: Yes, actually, now that we're here, let's give a big spoiler warning. If you have not seen any of season seven yet. Uh, you should turn this off right now because I'm about to spoil the heck out of the first three episodes. Okay.
1: But aside from that, I'm just wondering, like, what's the probability before we get into this, what's the probability of this fan theory being correct and someone maybe not wanting to hear it to not be Uh, spoiled?
2: 32.5%.
1: Okay. So if you are comfortable with those odds, stick with us. If you are not comfortable with those odds, you can leave us now. And I thank you. Okay. Go ahead, Jacob. (laughs)
2: All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna go try to breeze through his post as fast as possible, at least that, that hit the highlights. But as you may remember, uh, Melisandre, the uh, red priestess, who we met back in season two, has been going on about the prince who was promised in Azor Ahai for seasons now, waiting to trying to find this reborn legendary hero who will wield the sword Lightbringer and stop the dark. Uh, is it the Dark Night Ben? The um the long night. The long night. Yes. The long the long night. Brought about by the Night King, it's actually for a show that's so interested in politics. It's actually one of the more fantastical elements of Game of Thrones. But in true Game of Thrones fashion, she believed that the Lord uh, that the uh, Lord of Light had picked Stannis Baratheon to be the new prince who was promised. But Stannis Baratheon died back in season five, uh, and then she thought it was Jon Snow. And there have been the fan theories that it's uh, actually Sandor Clegane, the Hound, sort of an unlikely monster turning into a hero, fighting his destiny kind of story. This theory says that it's Daenerys, and here's why it's Daenerys. Because in the lore of Game of Thrones books, it's mentioned that when Azor Ahai was forging the legendary sword Lightbringer, he tried to temper it in water, but the sword shattered. And on a second attempt, he tried to thrust the sword into the heart of a lion, but it shattered. And only on his third attempt did he thrust it into the heart of his wife did the sword become complete. And if you look at what's happened to Daenerys Targaryen this season, she's been getting her ass kicked. She lost a naval battle, uh, a huge one, where she lost many of her allies and most of her navy. Her troops get stranded at Castle Rock across the continent because the Lannisters had abandoned it and uh, to attack somewhere else. And you may remember, and here's where this gets interesting and why I think there's something to this. Uh, Daenerys loses a water battle. Ezra high's sword shatters in water. The sword shatters in the heart of a lion. Her troops get stranded at the Lannister stronghold the Lannister sigil is a lion. So that brings us to the third part, which is, in order to finish Lightbringer, Azra Ahai had to thrust his sword into his wife's heart. And there are two possibilities here. Jorah Mormont, the, the guy who loves Daenerys more than anybody else, is finally heading back toward her as of last episode. And she has her most beloved dragon, Drogon, who is named after her dead husband. So I'm wondering if somehow Drogon or Jorah Mormont need to die in order for Daenerys could become the prince he was promised and fulfill Melisandre's prophecy.
0: And I think we've seen, (laughs) yeah, we've seen Kyburn talk a little bit about his plan to potentially take down one of the dragons using what is essentially a, a glorified crossbow. Um, so I think of those two choices, the idea that Drogon is the one who, uh, maybe even gets uh, an arrow or some sort of dagger through his dragon scaled heart uh, might be more likely than Jorah returning to Danny and Danny somehow needing to kill him for some reason, unless for for maybe his grayscale isn't as uh, cured as he thinks. And Danny basically has to like put him out of his misery or something like that. I was trying to figure out ways for the Jorah theory to pan out, but I ultimately, I think, if those two, if we're only choosing from those two options, I think Drogon is the more likely of the two. Um, I love the um, the symbolism here of this theory. I like the the thought behind it. I, again, like you've mentioned so many times before, Martin ha- is not really all about. <laughs> he is not uh, exactly the best author to throw fan theories at, but um, but he everything that he seems to have written about prophecies and stuff so far has come true in one way or another, maybe in unexpected ways. But, uh, I think all of his prophecies have been fairly spot on in the books and the show so far. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I I think this, there might be something to this.
2: You know, you're correct because, uh, if you remember a few seasons ago, Melisandre did a blood magic ritual that was supposed to kill off all of, uh, Stannis's rivals for the throne. And they didn't die yet. And then over the course of the next four or five seasons, they all died very, very slowly. So, uh, you know, there could be truth to this. Mel Stoddard knows what he's talking about, but magic in this world isn't wave your hand and cast a spell. It's dark, weird, unpredictable stuff that comes from regions that no one on the
0: show understands. So if policy
2: is true, then it could be unexpected.
0: And I think also it might um, it might be a little easier for book fans to take what's happened in this season of the show if they know, if it does prove to be true and if it is, you know, sort of symbolically aligned with this Azor High prophecy. Because as of right now, we've already talked a lot about how the pacing of the show has increased dramatically. And, um, you know, Danny is just, yeah, like you said, getting her ass kicked over and over again. And it seems unlikely that somebody so powerful would be, Um, Getting so handily beaten, but maybe if it's all part of this larger, you know, pieces falling into place to make this prophecy come true, maybe that will make the whole thing a little bit easier for uh, book fans to take.
2: Hmm.
1: I know nothing about any of this because I don't watch game of thrones, but it sounds interesting. <laughs> and hopefully the listeners at <laughs> home as it have gotten something out of this more than I have gotten out of this. I hope um, anyways, guys uh, you can find all of our work and you can find this whole story on slash com. You can find all of our work on slash film.com. Ben, where can we, where can we find you on Twitter? Yeah, you can find me at Ben Pears. and Jacob. Where can we find you on Twitter?
2: Jigabeth Hall, where I'm moaning and whining today, so ignore it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And, as always, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Please, if you like this podcast, go to iTunes, give us a five-star review and rating. And, uh, because that helps. And tell your friends. We could always use more listeners. Um, I mean, we're producing quality content, I think, on a daily basis. So please send some more people our way. And, uh, as always, if you have any feedback, send it to com. We will see you on Monday.